0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in
1: the show description to support now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
2: evening, children of the night, and welcome. I've missed you all. It feels so good to be back. Although, I don't know that I could have possibly left you in more capable hands. A monstrously huge thank you to Meredith for taking the blood-soaked baton and doing such a killer job over the last month. Thank you, too, for all of your insights, Meredith. I legitimately feel like I learned a lot about the influences and roles that women play and have played in the horror genre. That is a pretty tough act to follow. I'll do my best, but I'm also not against winning back your favor, children of the night, with some bribery. So, why don't we have another giveaway, shall we? This week, we've got a handful of digital copies of the latest entry in one of the pillars of the modern slasher genre. That's right, you can win your copy of Scream. Starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, and Courtney Cox, the new hit movie is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, and critics are calling it 100% terrifying. If you buy it on digital today, you'll also get a bunch of killer bonus content, including deleted scenes, cast interviews, and much more. I saw this one on one of my few forays into the theater since the pandemic, and it was such a fun trip down memory lane, with a few fresh spins of its own and a couple tender moments, too. But it was the self-deprecating meta-narrative that weaved throughout that really sold it for me as one of my favorites of the whole franchise. I'm excited to watch it again at home. You can own it or rent it on digital today, or better yet, keep an eye on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram over the weekend for the chance to win your copy. But for right now, children of the night, we've got some screams of our own to induce. Let's get to it. Our first story for the evening comes from Tim Jeffries. Tim Jeffries' short fiction has appeared in Supernatural Tales, Not One of Us, The Alchemy Press Book of Horrors 2, and Nightscript, among various other publications. And his latest collection of horror stories and strange tales, Black Masquerades, is available now. He lives in Bristol, England, with his partner and two children. Follow his progress at timjeffries.blogspot.co.uk. Children of the Night, join me for Tim Jeffreys, Myers Cough and Skelton, first published in Blood Knife Webzine, October 2021.
0: They came only on grey days, or so it seemed to Victor. Foreshadowed. They came on quiet days. Damp days. Tuesdays. Nothing days. They came on days when the sky was overcast and the colours seemed bleached out of everything. Days when a fine misty rain fell. The kind of rain you hardly noticed, but which soaked you nevertheless. Days when awnings dripped and puddles formed. Days when old people complained of aches in their joints, as if these pains were a premonition of them. They came on days of no wind, of silence, stillness. Those were the days, oh yes, indeed. Those were the days to expect a visit from Myerscough and Skelton. In Victor's house on a high shelf in the kitchen stood an old tin that had once contained tea bags, rusty around the rim. Every Friday, after Victor's father got home from the factory, his mother would put money into this tin. For the rest of the week, sometimes while standing at the window, she would fret about the tin and say to herself, is there plenty of money in the tin? Have I put enough by? The money was for Myerscough and Skelton. Victor knew this without having to ask. He also knew that this money kept in a tin was why his mother had lines around her eyes and around her mouth. It was why they had spam for dinner on Mondays and on Thursdays. It was why his father drank. And it was why his mother had to glue his school shoes when the soles started to peel away and why she had to sew patches on his trousers and mend his coat when it tore. Can't afford new, she'd say. That money has to go in the tin, that money's for them. As if they were devils who would materialise when mentioned, his mother never spoke out loud the names Myaskoff and Skelton. Victor didn't know which was which, which was Myaskoff and which Skelton. One was tall and long and pale, like something stretched. The other was short and bald and chubby, like a baby, or like a bloated corpse fished out of the canal. Ghouls. When they appeared around corners, pigeons scattered, dogs ran home, and cats found high places from which to watch. Women called children in from the street and shut their doors, and men whispered it under their breaths. Myerscough and skeleton Both men wore long flapping black coats over smart gray suits. Victor thought they looked like crows like carrion birds. The tall one carried a brown leather doctor’s bag. All the children on the estate, including Victor, were both terrified and fascinated by this bag. In a corner of the schoolyard, Victor and his friends speculated endlessly about what was inside. They even had a rhyme about it. Maya, scoff and skeleton, steal the flowers, swipe the sun, grab the smile of a baby's face, carry it away in the big brown case. Added to this were the things the adults said to frighten them. Make sure you work hard at school, Victor's father warned or and Skelton will get you and put you in their bag. One time when Myerscough and Skelton had visited Victor's house, their bag had been left on a chair in the hall, and whilst the two men spoke to his mother in the lounge, Victor, heart pounding, had crept past the door, gone to the bag, undone the gold clasp, and looked inside. Within, he saw a fathomless black, a bottomless hole, avoid. And there were faces, hundreds, maybe thousands of faces, trapped, helpless souls, all screaming in the dark. And among those faces, there, among those faces, he saw. Snapping the bag shut in horror and reeling around, Victor caught the short one watching him from the lounge. Watching him, nodding his head and snickering. That night, he dreamt of being chased by Myerscough and Skelton. Put him in the bag with the others, the short one shouted, grunting as he pursued Victor. He hasn't learned his times tables. He hasn't learned his spellings. Get his little sister. Get his little friends. Get them all. Put him in the bag with the others. Victor had seen pictures of his mother laughing. Once, she'd been a bright young woman full of joy, full of laughter. Nowadays, she never laughed. She hardly smiled. All she seemed to do was frown and fret. She had become grey. As grey as one of Myerscough and Skelton's days. As grey as pebbles on a beach. Grey and silent. She sighed more than she spoke. The expression on her face remained resigned, no matter what. And her eyes. Her eyes were always far away. He wondered if she even saw him at all. One night, as she tucked him up in bed, Victor could no longer contain the secret of what he'd seen inside that doctor's bag that belonged to those two crows, those fiends, those devils, Myerscough and Skelton. He could no longer keep it inside himself, the thing that had frightened him the most of all. I saw you, he told her, Daddy, too. But his mother appeared not to hear him. It was just as he thought. Her ears didn't hear. Her eyes didn't see. Sweet dreams, she said, kissed him once on the forehead, and turned out the light.
2: That was Tim Jeffries, Myerscough, and Skelton, as read by Alexandra Elroy. Alexandra is a bilingual voice actress and writer who lurks by the shallow polders of the Netherlands, waiting for her next bout of inspiration. She loves everything to do with stories, especially creative and playful horror. Her favorite voices to do are witches, goblins, and crazy computers. Things she brags about are her children, her stories, her Japanese BA, and her podcast on UK culture, One Cup of Perfect Tea. Thank you, Alexandra.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: Our second tale tonight comes from Davin, Ireland. Davin, Ireland's stories have appeared in over 70 print magazines, webzines, and anthologies around the world, including Aeon Speculative Fiction, Underworlds, Pseudopod, Storyteller Magazine, and Something Wicked. You can visit his site at DavinIreland.com. Listen with me, children of the night to daven ireland's battleground first published in the december 2011 wicked east press horror anthology under the stairs
3: Mike Cherney cut the engine on his Lexus Hybrid and popped the seatbelt with an odd feeling of trepidation. Something wasn't right. The narrow stretch of the B-2110 before him dissected a sprawling tract of West Sussex countryside that ran unbroken from horizon to horizon beneath the gray winter sky. It was largely featureless save for a few nondescript hillocks and a skein of bare poplars to the north. But what really caught Mike's attention were the obstacles barring his way. Disturbingly, one of them was a sixteen-wheeled articulated lorry jackknifed into a nearby ditch. The other, slewed across the road and smoking languidly, bore a vague resemblance to a National Express coach. It was difficult to tell because the wreckage was scorched black by flames that appeared to have burned unchecked throughout the night. How such a thing could have happened was beyond him. Mike shoved the hybrid's door open and stepped onto the asphalt. The world looked bigger outside the car. Without the protection of its gleaming metal exoskeleton, he felt as vulnerable as a child lost in a shopping mall. Part of the reason for that, was the acrid stench of soot polluting the air, but it was the unearthly sense of quiet that really unsettled him, as if the scene had been deliberately set for the next stray tourist. It sprang to mind that this might be one of those dreadful hidden camera shows where unwitting participants were lured in and humiliated for the purposes of entertainment. But surely... The notion was absurd. The scene itself provided no clue. Like so many rural byroads in the southern counties, this particular stretch of the B-2110 had long ago fallen into disrepair. Yellow tufts of grass sprouted from the fissured surface at regular intervals. Decades of rainfall had eroded the crumbling edges so that the overall impression was one of enduring indifference, if not outright neglect. No production company with the resources to stage a spectacle of the type Mike had in mind would choose to do it here. Let's not be too hasty about this, he told himself. Weren't there reality shows where the bravery and resourcefulness of the contestants were rewarded with vast sums of money? Suppressing his reporter's instincts for the time being, he left his photographic equipment in the car and went to investigate. His camera phone would do for the time being. He didn't want any encumbrances. The charred shell of the National Express coach continued to exude lazy ribbons of smoke. There didn't seem to be anyone on board. The passenger seating areas were empty, the overhead luggage compartments likewise. Mike began to relax. Now this was starting to make a kind of sense— A collision had probably occurred in the middle of the night, with the victims being spirited away to hospital some hours previously. That meant the authorities would be returning to clear up the mess sooner rather than later, and when the tow-trucks arrived, they wouldn't appreciate an ungainly Lexus blocking their path. Strange, though, how there were no traffic cones or workmen in high-vis jackets to implement a diversion. That odd feeling of trepidation returned, and with it a rash of goose pimples that prickled the skin across Mike's neck and shoulders. He was already backing away when an anomaly of perspective caught his eye. The positioning of the Arctic lorry looked somehow unnatural. It would have been traveling northeast when it left the road because it faced away from him now, a buckled heavy goods vehicle sign hanging askew from its rear end. But where was the cab? Intrigued, Mike strayed onto the grass verge. Bit by bit, he edged his way around the ruined behemoth. He had taken perhaps a dozen tentative steps when the crater revealed itself. Easily twice the diameter of the last roundabout he had passed, it resembled a funnel-shaped puncture in the earth from which still more smoke arose. No. Wait. It wasn't smoke. It was steam, and it gathered in the crater the way a morning mist fills a natural hollow in the landscape. Heart thudding, Mike withdrew his mobile phone and keyed in a number from memory. Whatever caused this had been hot enough to vaporize the underlying groundwater. He knew that a bomb would leave a discernible blast radius, which left only one other question. He tried to remember if this part of West Sussex was built on a limestone formation, but his mind blanked on him. It made no difference. For while a ground collapse due to a subterranean cavity might account for a sinkhole of this nature, it could never explain the secondary devastation. The phone began to ring. "'Yes, yeah, Cheryl,' he said when the commissioning editor at the recorder picked up. "'It's me, Mike Charny. I have something for you.' The voice asked him a question. "'Mike Charny,' he repeated. "'The freelance reporter, the guy from Littlehampton. We worked together on the Dutton case last year.' "'Recognition kicked in, but no real enthusiasm. "'Good to hear from you, Mike. "'Things are kind of busy right now, so if you'd just—' "'No, I don't think I would,' he interrupted, "'because right now I'm standing on a public byway "'looking at the world's smallest meteor crater. "'It's flanked by two extremely large vehicles, "'both of them trashed by the impact.' "'A moment of extended silence preceded a flurry of background activity.' Mike found Cheryl Morgan's sudden level of animation particularly gratifying. He had spent the nine years since graduation filling short tenures at a procession of local rags without ever hitting the big time. Even when he did manage to ingratiate himself with one of the nationals, the relationship seldom lasted beyond a given assignment. Maybe this time they'd think twice before letting him go. Cheryl came back on the line with a series of rapid-fire questions. No, there, there aren't any bodies as far as I can determine, Mike answered. In fact, there isn't another human being in sight. The place is completely deserted. No police, firefighters, nothing. There's not even any blood. It's kind of spooky. The voice, a darn sight warmer in tone since the prospect of a front page had materialized wanted to know if he still had that police scanner in his Datsun. The lie came easily enough. I'll try the airwaves just as soon as I'm done talking stock. Oh, and I traded the Datsun in. I'm driving a Lexus these days. He failed to add that the Lexus was a rental. A little indulgence intended to create the impression of success when there was none. The voice asked him one more question, then signed off. "'Of course you can pay the money. Direct to my account,' he muttered and continued to circumnavigate the hole. Mike was already calculating lucrative television rights to go with the basic camera shots when he spotted the stranded lorry's cab. It dangled above the crater by a fractured coupling, the door nearest to him thrown wide. The upper half of the driver's truncated torso hung below it, entrails dribbling into the diffuse layer of mist that eddied and billowed around him as a disturb from beneath. Mike bit down hard on his tongue and tried not to scream. Don't panic, he told himself, and definitely don't puke. That poor dead guy just added a couple of zeros to your paycheck. The nausea subsiding, he deployed his camera phone from every possible angle and with each successive snap his mind repeated that time-worn yet topical editorial mantra, if it bleeds, it leads. There had to be more to this, though, didn't there? He had a sensational set of images, but no story. That's when he found himself gazing at the landscape that unfurled beyond the crater. With the Unwielding arctic no longer blocking his view, a new spectacle emerged. Abandoning the grisly aspect of the driver, Mike headed south. He stumbled through long grass and over uneven tracks of ground, attention fixed on the new discovery. The phone rang a second time. Mike Cherney. Cheryl again, groping for an update. Not demanding, not requiring, not even asking. The woman was practically begging him. He allowed her to grovel for a bit, then recounted the grisly fate of the driver. And there's piles of abandoned luggage everywhere, he added, stepping around an attaché case that looked as if it had been fried on a truck stop griddle. A profusion of suitcases, rucksacks, and overnight bags followed, their numbers increasing the closer he came to a low hillock some forty feet distance. He gave all of this to Cheryl in a running commentary, knowing full well she was either taking it down verbatim or recording it. "'Head for that hill!' she told him, find yourself the best possible vantage point and get filming. God knows what else you'll find out there. Mike couldn't agree more. Regrettably, the luggage issue was becoming a problem. Much of it had burst, heaving everything from bathrobes to tent poles to disposable nappies into his path. In places, he had to clamber over mounds of heavy winter clothing saturated with liquid mud— In others, his feet caught in carry handles and torn zippers, and the terrain was becoming increasingly treacherous. What Mike had originally perceived to be predominantly level grassland was quickly becoming marsh-like and difficult to negotiate. He pushed on all the same, determined to solve the mystery, before another hapless motorist came along and uploaded the scene to social media. Speaking of which, he made a point of filming everything on his mobile. I've found the bodies. Cheryl greeted this announcement with cautious silence, followed by, Come again? I said I've found the bodies. Stand by. Satisfied that he had complete control of the situation, Mike killed the phone. "'and slotted it into his trouser pocket. "'He was standing at the summit of a low hillock "'that offered an elevated view of the poplar windbreak "'he had spotted on his rival. "'The terrain beyond this point deteriorated into boggy marsh. "'Sodden tracts of heathland alternated with mud banks "'and pools of standing water, surfaces rippling lightly in the wind.' Corpses lay everywhere, or more accurately, sections of corpses. Body parts clogged the water, staining some of it a nauseating purplish black. Stray limbs decorated the spongy ground. Every single one of the victims appeared to have been systematically Dismembered. But that was only the start of it. Oblivious to the intruder, ravens and a few dirty gulls strutted between the various islands of exposed human flesh, tearing at the choicest morsels like barons at a medieval banquet. A miasma of blood, stagnant water, and unconfined fecal matter soured the air. Mike ignored it all. He was staring at another group of bodies, most of which were scattered in a tight arc to the left. Deeply afraid now, he made his way over on legs that felt like hollow tubes, mobile, warbling impatiently at his hip. He put it to his ear as if in a dream— "'Just received confirmation of a National Express Levant "'that went AWOL last night around 11.30,' "'babbled Cheryl, who seemed to have been talking to him "'even before he picked up. "'Apparently the driver called in just prior to the disappearance, "'claiming to have witnessed an armed conflict "'taking place on the deserted stretch of road near... "'They're wearing body armor, too,' Mike told her, "'the words seeming to emanate.' "'from a long way off. "'The passengers are wearing armor? "'You mean like Kevlar?' "'He swallowed hard. "'I mean like gladiators. "'About a dozen of them, only they aren't human. "'My guess is they dispatched the people first, "'then started on each other. "'He looked down at a disembodied four-fingered hand easily the size of a dinner plate. It was a faded khaki in color, with knuckles the size of chestnuts and curving black talons that looked capable of ripping the throat out of anything that got in its way. Orkneys, he whispered. He could sense Cheryl squinting down the phone at him. Could you repeat that, please, Mike? Ork. Niaz, he spelt it out for her. It's an old English word. It means monsters. Part of him expected sarcasm, a withering screech of derision. But no. If anything, Cheryl's tone became suspiciously pragmatic. Tell me exactly where you are, Michael, she said. I need to know. I'm afraid I don't have that information, Cheryl. Come on, you must know. You must have some idea. Uh Uh-uh. Then tell me the nearest fucking place. She was getting desperate. Taking his time, Mike delivered a measured kick to the grotesque-looking hand. It flipped onto its back, exposing a thumb ring that bore a jewel not quite large enough to double as a functioning paperweight. Regardless of what happened next, he realized, he would end the day a wealthy man. He relayed all of this to the recorder's commissioning editor and concluded with the observation that his future was guaranteed. So I want half a million— he said, and scooped up the massive hand. Cash or check, it makes no difference to me. For that, you get a creature feature Ray Harryhausen would be proud of. He worked the huge ring free of the grotesque-looking finger and stuffed it into his jacket. The hand thumped to the ground. Call back when you've okayed it with Haston Smythe. Dreading the next party, cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted, Anyone left alive out here? Even as he yelled the words at a blood-stained killing field, he found himself hoping he wouldn't have to deal with the fallout of reply. When none was forthcoming, Mike Cherney concluded that he had done his duty and struck off for the Lexus at a trot. It was only then that he spotted the sword. It lay in a tiny clearing of its own making, a little oasis of gems and steel among the slaughtered combatants. Limbs were tangled about it in a grisly parody of a wreath as, as if warring armies had converged on this place only to chop and slash their way to a stalemate. Mike approached the geometric center of the carnage, displacing several arms and legs as he went. He soon saw that the great sword's bejeweled handle must have been worth a fortune, although even this paled in comparison to the blade. Engraved in a language that resembled a mixture of Nordic runes and modern Arabic, it was long, slender, and devilishly sharp. On a whim. Mike snatched it up by the handle and experienced a moment of accelerated reality. Or perhaps it was hyperreality. He couldn't tell. Whatever the mode of perception, all natural sound vanished in favor of a high-pitched ringing that seemed to come at him from all directions. Flat-bottom clouds raced across the sky at astonishing speeds. The sun vanished and re-emerged on the horizon so quickly that it flickered the way it did when reflected in the windows of a passing train. Ominously, most of the color seemed to be draining from the world around him. What remained was enveloped in a greenish-gray haze, and there was something else. A trio of Ghostly wraiths, shrouded in black, hovered above the ground just a few feet from where he stood. For reasons he couldn't explain, Mike knew that they meant him no harm. They were merely companions to the sword, black-robed apparitions whose only task was to bear witness. Mike, dropped the sword. The tinnitic ringing ceased. The wraiths vanished. Color and sound returned to the landscape in an instant. For the first time, he was aware of birdsong high up in the branches of the poplars. Mike retrieved the sword. He couldn't help it. It only took a heartbeat to, for the chilly cocoon of hyperreality to reclaim him. Emboldened now, he decided to test his theory about the wraiths. Brandishing his newfound source of power, he marched towards them without hesitation. The legless apparitions retreated a concurrent distance, almost as if they were pegged to an invisible broomstick. He backpedaled a few paces. The wraiths advanced. That was enough. Mike turned and, barely sighting his target, swung the mighty sword. The limbless midriff lying at his feet didn't stand a chance. Fire roared from the blade as it collided with the steel breastplate causing a percussion wave to scroll out from a circle of body parts with a tsunami-like force. Mike screamed in a combination of agony and elation. The ground juddered beneath his feet. But that wasn't the only thing that moved. Suddenly, the wraiths were pointing. Pointing and hovering. Sensing danger, Mike whirled preparing to face any foe. As it turned out, there were plenty to choose from. For like a scene from a nightmare, dozens of the khaki-hued monstrosities were clambering out of the mist-softened crater, skulls stained red with gore that continued to drip from the Arctic's emasculated driver. Mike didn't hesitate or question the role fate had assigned him. He strode forward as more of the lumbering creatures struggled up out of the crater. None were as large as their predecessors, and only a handful wore body armor, but they were every bit as ugly. Mike didn't care. He hacked into the first of the gladiator hobgoblins with all the strength he could muster, and experienced an intense moment of glee as the creature detonated with a loud shriek, blood and entrails showering its companions. He lost all sense of time and Reality after that. With mind and body focused solely on the task at hand, paltry issues such as memory and conscious awareness lost their significance. What could have been a thousand centuries or a thousand seconds after the gore fest began, the last hobgoblins cleaved into two like a split log and collapsed. All of the strength drained from Mike's legs. He sank to his knees. It was no surprise when the phone rang for a third time. I didn't bother speaking to Heston Smythe, Cheryl Morgan informed him in a tone of crisp aloofness. It wasn't necessary. Tracking your mobile was child's play, and guess what, Cherney? One of our people is on assignment in the next town right now. He's on his way, even as we speak. Should be there in, oh, twenty minutes? Still groggy with fatigue. Mike was having a hard time processing the betrayal. What are you saying? He breathed. What does it sound like I'm saying? We're dropping you, Mike. The assignment's cancelled. If you'd acted like a gentleman and negotiated a reasonable fee— We could have done business, but no, you had to go greedy on us and screw the whole thing up. We had a deal, he insisted and struggled to his feet. Not anymore. And although he didn't quite catch Cheryl's parting shot, her words sounded uncanny like, Tough titty, Buster. Mike's mobile landed into the lake of arterial blood that covered his shoes to ankle depth. Screwed again, he thought in disbelief. I make the scoop of a century, and still they screw me over. Then it came to him. To hell with this, he told himself. What am I doing talking to her anyway? This isn't about selling a story to some tabloid newspaper. I'm the story now. Mike Cherney, Eater of Worlds. He swept up the sword with a growing sense of purpose. The lurch back into hyperreality occurred with gratifying ease. When he set off for the Lexus at a stroll, body radiating a newfound span of power, Mike understood that things would never be the same again. Lords and ministers would vie for his ear. Women compete for his favor. The sword was an awesome tool, one that would serve him well across decades to come. And if Cheryl Morgan of this world stood in his way, well, the nation would
2: become his battleground. That was Davin Ireland's Battleground, as read by Scott Fulps. Scott Fulps is a narrator and voiceover artist. When not disturbing your dreams with tales of horror, Scott can be found in Washington, D.C., where he works as a restaurateur. He currently resides in that most haunted of commonwealths, Virginia. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of Tales to Tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. Join us again next week, as we feed the hungry shadows, with more Tales to Terrify.